0: Hi, and welcome. This is Lee Siegfried, host of a Life Well Lived With Dogs podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a podcast where we keep it real. We talk about dogs, living with dogs, life with dogs, dog training, and the full spectrum of the journey from puppyhood and beyond. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get to it. Hello. Hello. Welcome. This is Lee Siegfried with Life Well Lived With Dogs podcast. I am so excited to join you today. I hope wherever you're tuning into, whether you're in the car, whether you're, I don't know, cleaning, whether you're walking your dog, whether you're driving, whatever you're doing, thank you. Thank you for your time and attention and energy and being here. Today, I'm gonna be talking about a concept that really comes up again and again, especially on the dog trainer side of things, in terms of the pet ownership side of things. And where I will just say that often we are, as a person that's like, My life's work has been trying to connect people with dogs, right? And getting that interspecies communication roll in. We're going to be talking about the micro and the macro. And I want to just create a little context for y'all. So, so often when I put out like the doggy bat signal to say to clients on community forums and so on and so forth, like, Hey, like, what do you have questions about? What do you want to be learning about? There are very specific things they want to troubleshoot and there is nothing wrong with that. Troubleshooting things is a part of like getting better and more effective at our relationship and communication with our dogs. And sometimes there's this there's this pattern that we kind of play around with, which is we want to solve the problem in a direct way, but actually an indirect approach may be the best way to solve the problem. And that can be a little sneaky one, and that can be not necessarily something that we give a lot of thought to as dog owners. But I want to talk about you know, what that concept really is. And then I'm going to tie it into a couple of things that were actually Q&As that came in regarding how to troubleshoot things. Like, all good. You're going to need to troubleshoot things, y'all. It's going to be a part of how it goes, but or and what I want to focus on is this idea that your interaction with your dog day to day says more about the problems you're having or not having than how to troubleshoot them in the moment okay so i mean and let let's be honest you're still going to want a strategy to troubleshoot them in the moment i know <laughs> and we often underestimate where the relationship is built and to me the relationship with your dog's always f- feels like it's built in the small quiet moments, it's in an exchange and touch, it's in the couch cuddle, it's in the nap together, it's in the maybe sharing your bed together. It's in the things that sort of allow us to indulge ourselves in the, the thing that we maybe consciously or subconsciously want from that relationship, which is the love, the affection, that mutual exchange, right? And, you know, I feel for you all because if you've read any kind of information or you have a dog with a behavioral, with some behavioral challenges, or you've just read any information about dog training on the internet, you're, it's again, you you know, you heard me say this before, it's a conflicting place to turn to for advice because there's this idea that there's a recipe to follow that's going to be effective for your dog. And that's just not true. You know, your learning style, your learning styles greatly vary. The type of dog that you have greatly varies. The temperament of that dog, the genetic traits, the the breed traits, the reasons that that dog is in existence, whether those breed traits were sort of watered up in, genetically speaking, or watered down, genetically speaking, the environment in which they live. Can you see how very quickly we get to needing a personalized approach for you guys, right? Because it really is so unique. And that can be difficult to... I think that's probably really at the core of a lot of conflicting advice. Is that it's trying to be broad, sweeping, when really there's a lot of personalized things that are going on that are so unique to to each and every dog owner in the relationship. However, like zooming out, because we're not, you know, maybe someday we'll be able to dial into that level of intricacy for each and every one of you. But if we zoom out, really looking at the micro exchanges you have with your dog on a daily basis can often lay the groundwork for the little problematic moments you have or, you know, challenging, let's say challenging. (laughs) Right. And, you know, and let's also keep in mind that what we might consider challenging could just be your dog being a dog and not necessarily having the feedback from us to make a different decision. So one of the things I greatly believe that can contribute to your dog's overall health and well-being is really allowing them to be dogs. And I know that that sounds maybe so, so simple, But I think there's a lot of truth to that. So allowing your dogs to be dogs really just a lot. It's it's really just a conversation of letting your dog like do the natural things it's designed to do. Because sometimes when we suppress that or don't provide access to that, you see a dial up in other ways. Right. And then you might be playing whack-a-mole with your dog's behavior um, simply because they're really under enriched. That is like not a new conversation. And if you're hearing that for the first time. I probably could direct you back to like an enrichment, the podcast on enrichment that talks about how to meet those needs. The other thing, though, is like how we actually communicate with our animals. There's, there's like what we think we're doing versus what we're doing. So I'll give you an example of that. So one of the questions that came in was like, how do I prevent jumping early on, so that I'm preventing it later when my dog's larger and bigger and more likely to jump on things or like counter cruise or counter surf and steal stuff. And I think that that's a great conversation because it's such a common issue, right? Dogs jumping, like we've all been there. But rather than going strategically, how do I stop jumping? What I'm really gonna sort of flip the question to is, how are you preventing the jumping? But that's like kind of even a boring question to ask, right? I get it, it's not sexy. We're like, oh, I have to prevent it. (laughs) Insert world's biggest eye roll. Come on, can I just fix it? Like, yeah, you can, but like, Really, the question underneath the question to me is, does your dog take you seriously? Or do you have the type of communication with your dog where you can like, A, they know what you want. There's some established behavior that you can tap into or a series of things. Like if I have a dog that's jumping, I might tap into an off as a request, wait as a request, which just means stop movement, sitting, standing as a request, or um, calling them back to me to move away from the thing they may want to jump on right? It's like, it's like, think about having, instead of it being a dog, right? Think of it like you have a car that you have to like voice control the steering and the brake and the gas pedal. That's what, that's what that feedback system is sometimes is you're asking your dog to stop or slow. You're asking them to maybe turn or turn away from the thing that's interesting and then come back to you. You're basically asking your, you know, those are the things I'm thinking about with jumping, right? I'm asking my dog to move away from things, Basically put it in reverse, hit the brake, hit the gas pedal, or I need you to do like probably a 180, a U-turn and come back to me. So a lot of it is like movement-based and directional. And dogs have their opinions, you know, and and thank God for that. <laughs> I love a good opinionated dog that also likes to make suggestions with witty banter, <laughs> Um, no, I'd really like to go over there and jump on that person. Like, why is this such a problem? And then let's look at like, what's on the other side of jumping. Usually what's on the other side of jumping is a lot of hardwired, emotive displays from people that get a dog really insanely worked up, like in an excitable way. And then we, we sometimes, you know, back to the, like, how do you prevent that? We sometimes allow that to happen again and again and again in the name of socialization, Right. So socialization is that construct or that idea of like, my dog needs exposure to people. They need to like experience these things to have, to not have big reactions to them later. Sure. But I mean, your dog can also learn how to like observe people at a distance while you're teaching it how to just hang out with you. And then maybe you approach and go in for some, for some pet pets, and then maybe you move away. Like if that's a value, you want to think about how you're creating a predictable, routine for the dog that you can tap into when you need it. So think about this. Like if I have my if my if I have my kid. If I have my kid out in public, but it sounds I mean sorry. Kid brain dog brain. Kind of same brain. If I'm with my daughter, (laughs) if I'm with my daughter in a public place and I can tell she's like hungry or her or you can just, you know, sometimes you just get a vibe like they're tired or you knew going in like, oh no, they're tired. Or like, hey, we're just grabbing a quick bite somewhere. I've got the coloring book. I've got the stack of cards. I've got ways to engage her so that she can sort of just settle in and do her thing. That's not to say that she can't just sit at a table and share space with me, but like often it's like you know turn the turn the paper mat over. We're playing tic tac toe. We're making up games. She's drawing. Like she we're just giving an outlet. For whatever comes through, so that we're not just sitting there twiddling our thumbs. And then all my kid is thinking about is like when a fruit cup's gonna come, you know? So for our dogs, like similarly, there are so many ways to get ahead of jumping. And I'm gonna talk about how to set up the environment to make that construct like really an easy idea. And then we're gonna also talk about like the skill set that I think is required to really get there too. Okay, let's talk about back to the micro and the macro. The micro conversations are the things that are happening day to day that are actually sometimes they're conditional and sometimes they're actually actively being taught. So in a, in, in a micro sense, what I'm going after when I'm teaching a dog that doesn't like know a thing, how to be able to like be more reliable to do a thing that is often, often quite the opposite of what they would naturally choose. So that's the other thing, Right the requests that we make of our dog actually have to challenge them to do things that they don't want to do. Like move away from something interesting. If they don't have a baseline, like understanding or you have not actually helped them routinely learn how to do things that challenge the motor patterns that they would likely choose the habits that they would likely choose. You're going to struggle with quote, having your dog listen to you. (laughs) They don't... You haven't done the groundwork on the micro to be able to tap into that on a macro level, right? You have not actually taught them the foundational skills that then allow you to make a bigger ask. So you have to start with like the small ask. You can't just like, I don't know if I have a communication system established with my dog. I don't think I do. They jump on the counter and I yell. Like, will that get it done? I mean, like maybe in the moment but I wouldn't count on it to be a long-term strategy. It's really going to come through for you. So in terms of the micro, if you don't have, if you don't have the micro established to tap into the macro, then you're, you're, you're starting with management. It's just plain old prevention back to like wince. Do I have to manage? Well, it's a, it's how, it's how hard you want to work, right? It's like shooting a video and then being like, Oh man, I think I have to re-edit that video. Ooh, I don't know if we filmed it correctly. Maybe we can do better. Mm. It's like, I'm sort of in that process right now, like looking at a lot of content that's created and looking at ways that I can really create a more engaging experience for people, right? And the way it's going to look is not going to be the way it looked six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, whenever things were filmed previously, right? So it's like a timestamp of like how people are used to digesting and processing things. It's like, it's changed. It's always changing, right? So back to the micro and the macro, What you're looking at is if you don't have the micro established, you can't go for the macro ask. I mean, you can try, but it's ultimately probably not going to really be a long-term sustainable strategy. At the micro level, if I'm not set up at the micro level, I just, I I rely on management. My dog's leashed. I'm keeping my dog close to my body. I'm not allowing the jumping to occur. And then I'm working towards building the micro skills that are going to allow me to be able to make that ask in the future. Okay. So the micro skills, I'd mentioned these before. And again, we're just talking about jumping, but I want to, I want to be able to move the dog, stop moving the dog. And I want the dog to like ideally move with me. I want to be able to move the dog away from things close up and at a distance. And I want to be able to work on a word that's meaningful. That basically is like, it basically means no to teach the dog to disengage. And that's usually teaching the opposing pattern of back away from something like move away from it versus move towards it. I'm going to just myth bust this right now. And I just had a client write me the sweetest thank you note that just really meant a lot to me. There's, you know, there's this idea of not saying no that was completely perpetuated. We're going into the bat cave on this one. We won't be in there long though. Stick with me, folks. Okay, so there was this idea in methodology that basically perpetuated... The great white buffalo of dog training, which is the concept of not saying no. I mean, because here, here's why this is the great white buffalo, the non-existent thing in dog training that's like gets spoken about and bantered around, but isn't really that helpful for people. People say no all the fucking time. Like you want to see a parent with a kid? They say no a lot. There's some statistic out there about the number of times a person actually hears the word no. And it's, I think it's in the hundreds of thousands. Now, as a parent, I have to say, and even as a dog person, owner, pet parent, guys, still not leaning into pet parent. I'm resisting. I have been pretty mindful of my use of that because I want it to be instructive and not just noise. Similar with my kid. If it's instructive, it's usually a request or it's like a safety thing. It's not like I'm just saying no to say no. Right. There's not a lot of value in that. Right. There's just there just isn't. So I had to be mindful of my machinery. However, if no or some other word is um, taught with a meaning that's helpful to the animal, like to move away from something or to just stop movement. And let's, let's just, let's like take it over here. Let's make another little, we'll make a left turn now. Let's say that you never quote teach that word to be meaningful, but you just say it with a ripe enough tone that it's attention getting in the moment and it causes your dog to pause and they're like, what? I mean, who's to say it's not helpful to the dog and to you? Because remember, animals don't necessarily, in terms of language, they're very likely more responsive to tactile communication, visual communication, once it's relevant, and tone, right? Like, we all know the difference between the like, I'm barking at the neighbor's dog, to like, there's something weird happening. <laughs> To i I'm whining because I know you're upstairs. You know, for me, it's the tone can indicate, is there something really, what's going on in the yard that I'm not aware of, right? Or it's, there's a deer in the yard, which is, that doesn't happen frequently, which is way different than just like, oh, hey, it's it's the neighbor dog walking outside. It's like the half-hearted like, "Ah," bark versus the like, "Ah," or there's a stranger, somebody walking through. So just like tone can communicate. So back to no. All right. We're getting back on the road. Back to no. Teaching your dog something that can actually stop or slow movement and or cue them to move away from things, I think is insanely valuable because it is directly working the like atrophied muscle that sometimes we're, we didn't know was atrophied, but we're like scared to make meaningful because we're like, how do we do that without, you know, effective without being like, too firm or too like whatever. So that to me is the is the great white buffalo is that it's this idea that that being effective and that request or that cue is actually gonna like set you up to be like the bad guy. I mean, there's a lot of times for my dog when I'm like the no fun person, like example. I was like pretty much, I'd say 95% the fun person this morning we went for a hike um, I'm doing my, like my little workout. She's free ranging in the field. She's digging in a Creek. Like she's a muddy mess. She's she's, I allow her plenty of time to be dog. And then I don't know, five minutes later, she's a little further up the Creek. I look over and she has something in her mouth. I'm like, Oh, what is that? It's like, Oh, it's the vertebrae probably from a deer. That's interesting. And she lays down with it. She chews on it for like 20 seconds. I ask her to off it she begrudgingly drops it and is like still like right on top of it, ready to be like, I can take this with me. Right. And then I move her away from it by using my body to get in between us. And I repeat the cue. And then at some point, I think I just put my leash on her. Cause I was like, you know what? You're dodging and going behind me. You're just trying to work around me to get back to the thing you want to get to. I have mad respect for her game. Right. I'm like, Oh, I see what you're doing here. And this is kind of funny. And I love that you're this clever. And for real, we're leaving this field without you carrying that like deer vertebrae with you. So we had to have a little negotiation. Like my dog probably just wants to like lay in the field and eat that thing. And I'm like, all right, gotta go. Also, we're not bringing that with us. And I don't want to touch it. Please get it out of your mouth. Thank you. Love you, my Let's go. So there, like, therein lies the micro and the macro. So that was a pretty challenging moment for us because I'm very clear that her, uh, enthusiasm to leave a bone in a field and like, follow me. was like very low on her list. Dogs will have you check your ego right at the door, which I love. I mean, I think that's like the greatest gift. And we have also worked a lot on off. We have also worked a lot on, um, our movement being meaningful. And I know when to say when, in terms of relying on a management strategy to get me over like a little rough patch, it's sort of like, Hey, I might not normally need to look at the directions on Google Maps, but maybe I maybe there's a reroute here, and I'm not familiar where I'm at, and I need to like look, check the map here for a hot minute. So, me throwing the leash on is like I'm going to check the map here for a hot minute. But I don't, under all circumstances, expect that my dog should just like do the thing for me, right? So, dogs that are excitable and like want to jump, um, you know, you may be having to check the map for a minute and throwing the leash on to prevent that quite a bit, or you might have to shorten up on the leash to prevent that. And you might want to check in with yourself, like how much have you allowed the dog to really like go nuts greeting people? For me, it was something that I tried to limit early on because my dog was a submissive peer. So if you got excited, said her name in like an octave even slightly higher, I'm like cleaning up a pee mess on the ground, she's jumping all over you, in like a real sweet fawn response, but in a way that I think could just be, I mean, she's 65 pounds, it could be a lot for people, and I don't want people walking in my house to have to deal with that, right? So what did we work on? I'd leash up strategically in terms of getting like lazy or I'm going to say energy efficient. It's not lazy. It's crafty. It's clever. Um, I If I gave her a high value chewy, when people came in, she'd just take it to the other room and lay down and chew on it for the most part and leave them alone. We're talking like bully stick. We're talking frozen stuff Kong. And then we worked on strengthening that off to actually cue her away from all kinds of things that she would be drawn to because people are exactly, it's like moth to a flame with a lot of these very social dogs. And back to tying that socialization idea, not allowing your dog to meet and greet people in that way does not thwart their socialization. And I think that's sometimes where it starts. We're like, "Mm, like I read somewhere that I need to socialize my dog. So this is part of the process. You're not wrong about that. Also, part of the process could be observing people at a distance, moving towards them, moving away from them. So that's the micro. Those are the small asks that you're actually teaching the dog a routine that you can then have a bigger ask down the road. But you can't go from non-existent micro to macro and expect to have success, which is a lot of times where people will put their time and energy on solving like one issue. And if really, truly that's all they needed to have a great relationship with the dog, a Rio have fun. That's effective for you, right? And and if it's like, well, I mean, I feel like I got a little piece of it, but I'm still kind of wandering around in the dark. Got it. (laughs) Then you're going to need... You're going to need to take a look at how you're communicating with your dog beyond words. Are you using movement? Do you have tactile information? Do you have, is your leash meaningful when the dog's leashed? Does your movement mean something on leash and off leash? Does your tone mean something? Does your body language mean something? Just as all of our dogs and owners sort of create a unique blueprint, very similarly, we each individually can tap into things that are going to amplify the communication and also allow you to. Turn up the volume on a request. That's another tricky one that people struggle with. I'm going to talk about that more on another episode, but amplifying a request is just understanding how to deliver communication in a way that's effective in the moment to help your dog. And sometimes I find what people get stuck with is like they make the request and the dog's like, thanks for that suggestion in the suggestion box, but they face palm you and they're like, next. (laughs) And you need a way to be like, oh, whoa, hey, that that wasn't like an optional idea, often for their own safety. So we're going to get into that next. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. So big idea here, guys. The micro ask allows you to 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 have a macro conversation with the dog, but without the micro, you, you don't have any business asking for that macro. So what does that mean? Eh, probably going to have to take a look at how we're doing things with our dogs. Probably going to have to look at how we're interacting with them on a daily basis. And if we're kind of building in The idea of the micro ask into the fabric of our day to day because that is like that is the big piece so maybe i'll talk about that next all right thanks for listening guys this is lee with opportunity barks and the life will live a dog's podcast thank you for joining me